appreciate the worship team and uh, Pastor Ray and leading us in time of remembrance of our, our Savior <clears throat> and the wonderful redemption that we have in Christ. As we continue worship this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 43. Uh, we'll look at Isaiah 43, 1, all the way to uh, the first five verses of chapter 44. So we'll be a good long section. Just uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I wish we had eternity, uh, you know, to, to preach the Word of God, and then I would take each of these sections as a, a sermon, and you would be able to endure it. Uh, but... Uh, <clears throat> As it is, uh, I'm not that good of a preacher, and, uh, you know, we're not able to endure. Uh, so uh, we, we will take this large chunk today uh, together as it just reflects upon this wonderful theme of our redemption, redemption, that God is our redeemer, and the significance that that has for the people whom he has redeemed. So Isaiah 43, verse 1, to all the way 45, 5, and I'll, I'll read the text within the sermon, so I won't read it beforehand, but... Will you join with me one more time in prayer? <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. And thank you that you are our Redeemer, our God. Thank you, Lord, that in you we do not have to fear. In you we do not have to be worried that we'll be cast away from you. Because you are a God who loves your people. Your love is not fickle, not temporal. It is a love that is forever, eternal, loyal. We thank you, Lord, for your love manifest in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can remember him today as we take, took of the elements of communion. We pray now as your word goes forth, may you cause it to accomplish that which you purpose to do in each and every soul here. We thank you for bringing our guests and visitors with us from, uh, this, from this city, uh, from a little further out, and even all the way across the world. Lord, we pray that... In your providence, as you brought each one here, may you cause them to hear exactly that which you wish for them to hear from your word. Lord, cause us all to draw closer to you, to grow in love for you, knowing your great love for us. We pray that your word now would be magnified, and may your spirit fill us, be our teacher, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, uh, as we've been singing in our songs, we've sung about our redemption in Jesus Christ. Now, the doctrine of redemption is a key theme throughout the Bible. Uh, it's a key theme of, uh, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. And it's a key theme, particularly as Christians, New Testament Christians, this is a, a precious doctrine to us, that we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And, that's a, and, and as New Testament saints, we understand that we've been set free from our slavery to sin. But for Old Testament saints, when the Old Testament saints, particularly if you read through the Old Testament, in light of just the, the, how Revelation was revealed progressively uh, throughout the times, when they thought of redemption, when they came across the word redeemed, more often than not, they were not thinking of the redemption from sin, from slavery to sin. But a highlight uh, in Israel's history was the redemption from slavery in Egypt. And more often than not, that's what they would have thought when they heard of this term, how the Lord redeemed them. In fact, we see this in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. We see how that word is used there. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 through 8, we can read these words from God to Moses to the people of God. He says there, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. 
I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God's deliverance of Israel was the greatest witness to God's faithfulness to his covenant promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And wherever they went throughout the scriptures, whenever Israel needed to be reminded of their redemption in Christ, they would be reminded of how they were delivered out of Egypt, how God mightily delivered them, how he used his, the, the, his mighty supernatural power in, in creating all the plagues so that Israel would be released from captivity in Egypt. And so there, when they think about how they were redeemed, they were, think of them how they are physically redeemed from Egypt and brought into the promised land. With that in mind, then, if you could put your, pretend for a moment or just imagine you were an Old Testament saint, it would have been a great blow to them as those who believed in their redemption in, uh, by the Lord that when they heard from God foretelling them through the prophet Isaiah that the nation would be cast out of the promised land. They would be cast out of the promised land, and moreover, they would be cast out in the promised land to become slaves once again, not in Egypt this time, but in Babylon. So you could imagine then having this come upon them, being, predict, being promised this by God and through the prophet Isaiah, that they would have a great, had to experience a great fear, that they would have thought that, has God forsaken us? Has God forsaken them because have we committed a sin that is so bad, so terrible that God's basically done with us? And he's going to choose a new nation or have a new people. The question that they might have asked and the question that we too will ask as Christians who wrestle with sin, who fall into sin at different times, who experience the discipline of God in our lives, sometimes an extremely uh, strong discipline because of our rebellious hearts, But we wonder and we ask this question, do the sins of the redeemed negate God's love for them? Can our sins that we commit as those who have been redeemed by God, can they become to some extent so great that God will say, I've had enough. I'm through. And cast us away into captivity. We find the answer to this question in our text this morning. In today's passage, the Lord affirms his love for sinful Israel as the Redeemer. Though he has disciplined them because of their sin, he's going to discipline because of their sin. He is their Redeemer God. This is the theme that we'll emphasize throughout. He is their God. They are his people. And he will not forsake them nor leave them without hope, despite their sin, despite their continued sin. Even when they've sinned and and failed to be God's servant, when they failed to fulfill his purposes for them as a nation, God does not fail them. God remains faithful to them. When we looked at chapter 42 last week, we were introduced to the perfect servant, the Messiah, the messianic servant, remember? And in contrast to the perfect messianic servant, Israel, on the other hand, was a sinful, rebellious, disobedient servant. And though the perfect servant would accomplish all that Israel failed to do, it did not mean that God was discarding Israel. 
It doesn't mean that God was replacing Israel with another people. Their Redeemer would not forsake them. He had made a promise to them that they have a relationship with him. And in our chapter today, God essentially assures Israel of his love for them, that he loves them. And when God loves a people, it is not a temporal love. It's not just a conditional love. It is an unconditional love. It's a sacrificial love, and it's an eternal love, a loyal love. So we'll look at this passage today, and we're going to find for Israel God's assurance to them, God's assuring truths to them. That he wants to give them words, and, and this is just this chapter is rich with promises. You kind of you could almost highlight every verse, you know. Like you could, you know, you put those verses that encourage you as you're going through your day. This chapter is rich and full of them. But we'll look at f- today five assuring truths for those whose redeemer is the Lord. See, Israel's redeemer is the Lord, and these truths that He speaks to them are assuring to them of His love. And by application for us, by principle and application for us today, as the people of God who are redeemed. We too, I trust, will find assurance in these truths as well. That in different ways in the New Testament, God assures us of these promises too, these words as well. And may they be an assurance to you when you wrestle with sin. For there's not a single person in this room that hasn't sinned since the last time we took communion. I'm sure we sin daily with our attitudes, our words, sometimes our our actions or, or inactions. We realize that every single sin, all our sins, were placed upon our Savior, upon the cross. And though it costs God so much, God, who is our Redeemer, assures us with these truths. So let's take a look at these five assuring truths for this, us, us this morning. The first assuring truth that God gives is found in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 43. And this is this assuring truth. He says this word to them. He says, do not fear. It's a command. Really, you don't have to be afraid, is what he says. Uh, the exhortation to not fear is found three times in our passage today. Two in this very section, verse 1 and verse 5. Later on, it's going to be reiterated in chapter 44, verse 2. You know, why is it that God tells the people of God not to be afraid? Why does he tell them that? Well, at the end of chapter 42, God had promised the, the pouring out of his wrath upon Israel. Because they continued in sin, he was going to send them into captivity and Babylon. He was going to pour his wrath upon them. This wrath would lead to their slavery once again. They remember what it was. They remembered by all the stories of their forefathers who had been enslaved in Egypt. Now they were going to be enslaved in Babylon. They had already familiar with what had happened to. Uh, the northern kingdom, Assyria, they had been enslaved as well by Assyria, taken in, also taken into captivity. Now, in a short while, it would be their turn. So despite this coming judgment that was promised by God, and if God promised it, it would be a sure, prom- surely take place, God tells Israel that they do not have to fear. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me, chapter 43. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. God, who had created and formed Israel, assures them that they do not have to fear. because Why? Because God has redeemed them. It says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. That's the Hebrew perfect tense. It tells us this is something that is a completed action. 
It's already taking place. How has he redeemed them? Well, again, remember what, the, what they would have thought about when God talks about redeemed? They would have thought back to their time and their deliverance from Egypt. He is reminding them that he had redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt. And though they go to captivity as slaves in Babylon, he, they do not have to be afraid. He will not abandon them and leave them there. They belong to him. They are, he says, they are, you are mine. That's wonderful, isn't it? You can just imagine God saying to you as the redeemed, says, you are mine. You don't have to be afraid. I will look out for you. That's just a comforting thought for Israel and even for us today. And I love it because, because here he says that no matter what takes place, even though he's disciplining them through their captivity in Babylon, though they go through difficulties, they go through trials. What does he say in verse 2? He says, when you pass through waters, I will be with you. He's redeemed you. And so because he's redeemed you, he does not, first of all, he does not notice, he does not promise to say, I'm going to take away the waters. I'm going to take away the fires. I'm going to take away the, the rivers and, and the flames. No, he says, when you pass through them, I will be with you. That's a great, it's a great truth, a great subtle truth to realize as Christians. God does not promise to take away all our trials, and especially when he's disciplining for our sin. God's not saying, I'm going to take away, oh, I'm going to take away your punishment. Oh, I'm going to take away that time out. I'm going to take away for that, that rod that you deserve. But when he allows, he disciplines us, whatever trial he brings into our life to, to bring us to repentance and to bring us to greater faith, God promises to be with us. He assures us of his love even as he disciplines Israel. So though you walk through waters and rivers and fires and flames, the people of God, those who are redeemed by him, know that the Lord will be with them and they will be protected. Even more, the Redeemer here promises and describes how he has the world at his disposal and he will use it for them. Verse 3 and 4, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. When it comes to the term redemption, redemption is this idea of deliverance at the pay, by the payment of some ransom price. And so God is using here that ransom imagery, the ransom metaphor. He's telling Israel that I'm going to deliver you from Babylon, and I'm going to use whatever is at my disposal to do so. In here he describes how he's going to use even Egypt and Cush, uh, Ethiopia, and Seba in Israel's place to bring about their deliverance. Now, this is, how is this fulfilled? Is, is fulfilled in the future when King Cyrus, the king of Persia, comes and defeats Babylon and release so that the people of God may be freed from their captivity, God then rewards or gives to King Cyrus the opportunity to conquer the other nations surrounding uh, Babylon. Because once he took out Babylon, essentially uh, Cyrus became the, the ruler, the mightiest ruler of that known world. And then one by one, these other mighty nations, Egypt, Cush, and, and Seba, came falling down to his sword. God's love here for Israel is shown in that it is so great that there is nothing at his disposal that he would withhold for their deliverance. There's no nation at his fingertip that he will not give, that he will not use to bring about the deliverance of his people. And 
in the ultimate sense, this is a wonderful picture, of course, of what God does himself, doesn't he? There's nothing at his disposal, not even his son, that he would withhold for the deliverance of his people. That's why you don't have to be afraid. God is a generous God. He will, because of his love for you, because you are his redeemed, he will use all his disposal to bring about your deliverance. In verses 5 to 7, Israel does not have to fear because God promises to bring them back into their land. So here he promises in 5 to 7 that he will bring them back into the promised land. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the earth, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Here God is promising to Israel that they do not have to be afraid when they're in captivity because he will bring his people back. No matter where they are, whether they're from the east, the west, the north, the south, God's going to call all of his people, his chosen nation, back to the promised land. And while this would be partially fulfilled following the exile, this will completely be fulfilled when the Messiah comes again, when Jesus returns at his second coming. God will at that point bring all Israel back to the promised land. That's why they will dwell in Jerusalem, in in Israel, and the nations will go there to look for the truth because there the Messiah will be. And verse 7 just encourages us that God will do this for his glory. In many ways, when we fall short of God's perfect standard, we too may respond by fear. We too can be afraid that the, the Lord might forsake us, that somehow he's, he's, his love is only so much, that he will tolerate only so much sin, and then, oh, I'm not gonna, you're not worth it. I'm not going to love you anymore. But not so with God. God will not forsake Israel. He does tell he, he will not forsake them. But it's not just for Israel that's this true. This principle is taught in the New Testament for the people of God today as well. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, the latter part of verse 5, God himself says this: I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And that's the promise. We do not have to be afraid. Even when our sins are great and they're and it seems it brings our world our world completely crashing down. And God is disciplining us. You do not have to be afraid that the Lord will forsake you because you belong to him. There's a second encouraging truth that we find in this text for the people of God and for Israel. And that is, we find in verse 8 to 13, and that is, you are my witnesses. He tells Israel, you are my witnesses. In chapter 42, verse 19 Israel was called, if you remember, a blind and deaf servant of the Lord. And they were considered blind and deaf because they were disobedient to the Lord. And you think about it, especially in those days, but there was really no use for a blind and deaf servant. You can't see, you can't hear. How can you even follow the instructions that the master is going to give you and then go about carrying it about? So to be blind and deaf was to be useless. And that's how Israel was pictured, to be useless, of no use to God. But even though their sin made them blind and deaf, God says to Israel, and as a means of insurance, encouragement in these verses, that no, you are still my witnesses. You are still my witnesses. You are still my servants. 
God calls them to be brought forward, these blind and deaf servants. He calls not only them to be witnesses, but he calls the nations as well. Verse 8 to 13 are like a court case where each side is called to bring forth their witnesses. And God calls forth blind and deaf Israel, sinful Israel, to be his witnesses still. Verse 8 and 9, let's look there. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is true. Israel and the nations are called together. And God challenges the nations, just as he's done in previous chapters, to bring forth any witness. Just bring forth anybody. Show, bring anybody to come forth to witness that the nation itself or the gods of the nations were somehow had the ability to predict the future. He doesn't even tell him, tell me something that you're going to predict that's happening in the future. He says, just tell me someone who actually predicted the things that have already taken place. Show me someone who has written down somewhere uh, in, his, in their words and their writings that this was going to take place and, and that's what took place. The nations have no one to, bring, to testify of that. But whereas the nations can't present any, any such witness, God can for himself. We see this in verse 10 to 13. He says to Israel, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed there was no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? You see, Israel as a nation was chosen by God for a very special purpose. They were chosen by him, formed by him, called by him to be his witnesses, to be those who had come to believe in him and know him. Of all the nations of the earth, God chose insignificant Israel. Even before that, he chose one single man, Abraham, out of the Ur of Chaldees. He chose him to know and believe in him. And remember, that's what Abraham did. Abraham believed in, in God. And Israel was called to believe in God and to know him. And they did. They came to know that he alone is God. In a world that was a polytheistic world where there were many gods, many different nations, as many as there were nations, there were gods. Some nations had many gods. But they, as the people of God, those who were redeemed by God, came to know that God alone is true. There was no other Savior besides him. Throughout their history, God would oftentimes declare to them that he was going to save them. And then he would save them. And then he would follow with proclaiming how he had saved them. And we find these recorded uh, in the word of God through the prophets of Israel. No other God did this. Only this God, the God of Israel, did. And it shows that he truly alone is eternal God. And that's why he redeemed Israel. God redeemed Israel that they might be his witness. He did not choose them because they were unique or special in any way. Even when they are sinful and rebellious, that's what they were when he found them. Because of who their God is, they are still his witnesses. It's a wonderful truth. You know, think about it. As those who have been redeemed, 
We too are God's witnesses, right? We're the witness. We've come to know God. We've come to believe in God. And we're called the witness of God as well in our world. And when we are as witnesses, we're not testifying to what great people we are, right? We're not testifying to what abilities I have. Certainly, we're not anything special. We are sinners just like the rest of the world. But what makes our job as a witness and testimony so powerful is that is who we testify of. We testify to who our God is. We testify to what he has done because he is the only Savior and God in all the earth. He is the only God who has sent his son to die in our place to save sinners who would never have chosen, never would have turned to him, never would have sought him, but only because of his mercy and grace and love, he saved us. He redeemed us. And that's what he did for Israel. And he assures them and tells them that though they have sinned, they are still his witnesses. And that's a comfort too, to know. They still have their purpose in his plans. You may sin. You may fall short daily. That does never rescind your part in God's plan to be his witnesses. Because it's not about you. It's not about us. It's about the God who has redeemed us. In fact, when you sin... It adds more to the power of God's redemption, doesn't it? Grace upon grace. There's a third encouraging word we find here that God gives to his people. And that is we find in verse 14 to 21. And that is God's promises to make a way. I will make a way, he says. These verses provide assurance to captive Israel that their redeemer would deliver them from Babylon. Verse 14 to 15, look at there with me. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the holy one of Israel. For your sake I have sent to Babylon and will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Notice, first of all, all the descriptors that God uses of himself in this text. The Lord, he says, your Redeemer, he's called the Holy One of Israel. We've already seen these terms earlier in Isaiah. Isaiah 41, verse 14, for instance, when God also told them not to fear. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Israel is reminded that their, their Lord, their God, is their Redeemer. He's the one who has delivered them and paid whatever was necessary to deliver them. He is also, though, the Holy One of Israel. He's the one who must, would hate sin and judges sin. To these titles, he adds a few more in these verses. He calls them, he doesn't say the Holy One. He says, I am your Holy One. I am the creator of Israel. I am your king. These just remind Israel of his personal relationship with them. It's because of who God is that he's able to make the promise that he does. It's because of this relationship that they have with him. This is their holy one. This is their creator. This is their king. And for those who are redeemed, he is our holy one. He's our creator. He's our king. And because he is our God, he is able to make a way. He promises here in these verses to to turn Babylon from being the ruler's to being refugees. They would flee on their ships. Chaldeans, another word for Babylon. Furthermore, he not only brings about Babylon's defeat, but he makes a way for Israel 
to return to the promised land. And in verse 16, 21, we're going to find two times Israel's going to, God's going to say, I will make a way. I will make a way. First of all, he, uh, let's actually let's read the text, verse 16, 21. Thus says the Lord who makes a way. There's the first time we see it. Who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. Who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. God here, first of all, describes how he had made a way for Israel during the Exodus. That's what he means in verse 16. We talk about who made a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. He's talking about the, how he made a way through the Red Sea. Remember when Israel came upon the Red Sea? God parted that river. He made a, so that they, Israel could walk through it on dry ground. But what happened when Pharaoh and his army came, the chariot and the horse came after? God caused the waters to fall back upon them where Israel was delivered, but they (coughs) fell to their grave and did not rise again. That's what God did for them. God is reminding them how he had made a way through the sea for Israel. But in verse 18 and 19, he says, but don't even think about that. You think of that, that's great, because Israel thought of that as their great deliverance. He says, I'm going to do something new, verse 19. I'm not just going to make a way through the waters. I'm going to make a way through the wilderness for you. The desert itself, the desert itself, he's going to make a a roadway in the wilderness. He's going to provide for them rivers in the desert. He's going to create, he's going to make the desert a place not of death, but of life. Where there'll be waters, and even the animals will praise God because there'll be bountiful waters so that the people of God can make it through the desert and arrive in the promised land. God will make a way for captive Israel to return to the promised land. Why? Because he's the redeemer. He's their holy one. He's their king. And as a result, when they, he delivers them, they will, prom- they will promise or they will respond and praise him. Though God promises deliverance for future Israel, Israel continued to sin. Even not only the Israelites who received Isaiah pre-exile, But the Israelites who would hear this word anew during the exile as well, they also continue to sin. Despite their continuation of sin, the Redeemer has a fourth word of encouragement for the people of God. And that is we find in verse 22 to 28. And he makes this wonderful promise. He says, I will wipe out your transgressions. Though you continue in sin, because I'm your Redeemer, I will wipe out your transgressions, is what he says. Your transgressions will not keep you or not separate you from my love. Verse 22 to 24, we look at the text. He writes to Israel, Yet you have not called on me, O Jacob, but you have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with, off- I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have 
You have bought me not sweet cane with money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Verses 22, 24 here, basically they call Israel out for their sin. It says, even though I promised you deliverance, I promised judgment, that, you think that would lead to repentance, but then he promised, I'm going to deliver you, and you think that would lead to repentance or a desire to walk with God. But yet Israel here is condemned for continuing to, in their sin. They have not called upon the Lord. They have instead become weary of God. They've taken him for granted once again. Whereas pre-exilic Israel was known for bringing their offerings, a multitude of offerings, with a heart that was far away from God, post-exilic Israel, who is the focus of these words, would not even bother with the sacrifices. They wouldn't even care that they, were, uh, that they could not make sacrifices to God. Israel didn't even make any effort to worship God in their captivity. Instead, they continued to sin. They burdened God with their sins, the Lord says. But still, despite all that, despite their continued sin, God says that he would forgive their sins. And that's what he says in verse 25. In fact, you could just highlight verse 25. 25 is the, the key verse in this whole chapter. And he says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Why don't you have to be, af- you do not have to be afraid? Why do you have to not be afraid that God will ever forsake you? Why do you not have to be afraid that your sins are so great that God is going to just throw you away and get rid of you? Because of this promise right here for the redeemed. He says, I will wipe out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. God's essentially saying he's going to forgive them of their transgressions. He's going to forgive their sins. He's not going to remember them anymore. And he doesn't do it for their sake, but he does it for his own sake, because of his own character, because of his faithfulness, his love, his mercy, his grace, his justice. God would wipe out their transgressions. He would forgive them because why? Because they're his people, and he's made a promise to them, and he's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to the promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he calls them to repent and acknowledge their sin. He wipes out their sins, but he is a God who loves them and calls them to repentance in the following verses. Verse 26, 28. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your cause that you may be proved right. Your first forefather sinned, and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. So I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary. And I will consign Jacob to the band and Israel to revilement. God here wants Israel to come and to return back to him. To see if they to respond. Is, is there any way that they might respond rightly? To give any answer for how they behave. But really for all of Israel and for all people. We learn here one of the great humbling truths of scripture. One of the basic fundamental truths of scripture. A truth that we find reiterated in the New Testament, that that is the truth that we are all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Israel, though chosen, called, elect, if you will, by God, saved, redeemed, granted many gifts and wonders, entrusted with the law, continued to be a people who fell into sin. And God reminded that Israel that they come, in fact, it's not just them, but they come from a heritage of sinners. Their first forefather, whether you think of that as Adam or Abraham, sinned. 
their spokesmen, that is, their leaders, their prophets, their kings, their rulers, their judges, they also sinned. But because God, the Lord, is their redeemer, they have this assurance that they will be forgiven by God. All Israel needs their sins forgiven by God, and God promises them to do so. But we wonder, how can God just forgive their sins? Isn't he holy? Is he not the holy one? As such, he must punish sin. He does punish sin. But he does so because he provides someone else to die for their sins. He has the whole world at his disposal for their deliverance. And you, you and I know, and later on we'll look at in close detail, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. This person, this man, he was taken away. He uh, was cut off out of the land that he died. And what did he die for? Not for his sins, but he died for the transgressions, the sins of his people. You and I know that this is a reference to the messianic servant. This is a reference to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was he who died in our place. It was he who died in place of Israel. And that's why, because all of Israel's sins, and all of, not only all of Israel's sins, but all of your sins and my sins were placed upon him on the cross. And because he died in our place, God is able to then promise them that he will wipe away all of Israel's as well as our transgressions. Because Christ bore them all on the cross. And this is a, a precious truth for us. This is why redemption is a key theme. Because when God redeemed us, when he delivered us from sin, he did not deliver us. He, did not to, he could not, didn't deliver us with money like precious gold, silver, or stones. But he delivered us through the payment of his son, the precious blood of his son. I'm reminded of that in communion today, that he gave his son You reflect upon that long enough, realize what a grievous, what, what a grief that would have brought to any father to give to lose their child. But God willingly gave up His Son, His one and only begotten Son, for our sins, the sins of sinners. For us today, we intellectually we understand that we're all sinners. I think. I mean, you ask any Christian, I come to church today, are you a sinner? And say, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. But often I, I, I fear that for us, myself included in here, we who gather together as a church each Sunday and as God is sanctifying us and making us more like Christ, sometimes we are tempted to forget that we are sinners. Sometimes we don't think we're as bad as people outside, people who do not know Christ. But may we never lose sight of this truth. Because when we lose sight of the reality that we are still, we are still sinners, that we have a sinful nature in us that is, that will, that is not going to be removed until we are glorified, the potential for evil is the same as anybody out there in the world. You read the news, you read those articles, you say, oh, man, that's terrible, that's horrible. That's, oh, man, I can't believe they did that. We should be saying, I can't believe I'm not doing that. 
if I knew the sinful nature that is dwells within us in our flesh. We are capable because of our sin nature of doing anything that is out there in the world. You can probably ask any police officer and they'll probably tell you of all those upstanding good people in the world that they will know and say, well, you know, they just seem like good people. But then they're caught up in abuse, stealing, sins that you'll be shocked at. It shows to show that you know, we can, we as we're, even though we are growing in Christ, we must always be remember that we are, we have a sin nature that we must continually to resist by the grace of God, the power of the Spirit. Uh, I've, I've been, you know, and just kind of as an application for, for those of us that are parents here, you know, we want to teach our children that they're sinners. Don't worry about their, you know, self-esteem, okay? You, you just want them to, to know Jesus, okay? Before they know their self, have the right self, and make sure they have the right image of God in them, that is, the image of God that's being conformed to Jesus. But before we can do that, we have to tell, help them to know that they're sinners. You know, it doesn't mean that you could just go around telling them, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. You know, every time they disobey, because that, that's like a broken record for probably most kids. But one of the ways that, you know, I've come to realize that I need to do, and now maybe you'll do it too, is that, to not be afraid as parents to tell our children that we too are sinners. I know, uh, uh, and I try to do that by just kind of retelling my, my our, our particular daughter these days, how as a boy, as a young boy, how I sin. Because I try to have her relate to the fact that she's a sinner even now, just as I was a sinner uh, it, too. And, uh, you know, telling her like, oh, well, and she kind of, uh, she'll ask me, oh, daddy, what were you like? Uh, when you were a boy, and she always asks it when I'm disciplining her, you know, for her sin. She wants to remember, remind me, well, what kind of, how bad were you, Dad? Uh, she always, and she asks it with such, you know, sweetness, of course. I'm like, okay. You know, and I'll, I'll tell her. But the, I'm not, and I think, so, am I desensitizing and making it seem like it's okay for her to sin? I hope not. But what I want her to know is that, yes, though I tell her that, as I tell her that how I sinned in the past, even as I'm talking to her about how she sinned presently, I want her to know that she's a sinner just as I. But I also wanted to know that that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. That's why Jesus came. That's why, because none of us can live a perfect life. We need Jesus. We need this forgiveness. And that's a wonderful truth here is that God, even as Christians, we continue to sin. But God promises to those who are redeemed that he will wipe out all our transgressions. We never have to worry that there's going to be, oh, so much. We're nearing that limit, and God's going to be like, nope, sorry. No more salvation for you. You're out. God's love for us is infinite, and he has wiped out. He will wipe out. He will remember none of our transgressions and none of our sins. Now, we could end the sermon right here in the end of chapter 43, but I believe that chapter 44, verse 1 to 5, are part of this prophecy as well. It's the same theme. There is repetition of similar themes, along with primarily the command, do not fear. So it ties these verses to chapter 43. So let's look at chapter 44 in the last of those first five verses for our last and final point. That God encourages Israel with these words. And he says, I will pour out my spirit. 44 verse 1 5. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb. Who will help you, 
Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I'm the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. Israel here is once again called the Lord's servant. This nation, they're reminded that they are chosen, that they are made, that they are formed for God's purposes. They had been called to be his witnesses, to be his servant. But up to this point, Israel has been a poor servant. He's been a blind and deaf servant. But God promises something that will help them to be the kind of servant that God calls them and saved them to be. And he promises them, particularly in verse 3, that he will pour out his spirit on them, or actually on their offspring, their descendants. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon unique individuals for special times, special circumstances. Not everybody had the Holy Spirit. But they would hear the stories. They had the scriptures. They would know when the Spirit comes upon a man or a woman that they would be able to do a mighty and miraculous things, powerful things, things that bring glory to God. But God here says, I'm going to pour out my Spirit, not just on one or two of you or three or four of you. I'm going to pour out my Spirit on all your offspring, on all your descendants, on all of Israel is the promise. And that was a great, encouraging truth. This very same spirit they've already learned in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, and chapter 41, verse 1, is the same spirit that would also be upon the Messiah himself, right? And the Messiah, having the spirit upon him, would then be empowered for ministry on earth. All that Jesus did, as he spoke with authority, as he did his miracles, they were all because of the power of the spirit working in him. This same spirit God would also pour out on his people in the millennial kingdom, Back in Isaiah 32, verse 15, the spirit there was promised that he would be poured out upon God's nation. And then they would fulfill their mission as God's servant. They'll become that effective witness that God chose them to be. And verse 5 shows the results of that time. They will be people who won't be ashamed of the Lord. They can be bold about their belief in the Lord. They're going to boldly proclaim that we belong to the Lord. I am the Lord's. I am of, of of God and he is my redeemer. He's my savior. They're not going to be ashamed of declaring the name of God. It will be an honor to be one who says, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a follower of the Lord. Well, although the church is not Israel, you and I know that we too are called to be witnesses. And just as similarly as with the servant of Israel, servant Israel, this art, Response, our role and responsibility as the church is also empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are told this much in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So when we walk in the Spirit, when we, we who believe in Jesus Christ are filled with the Spirit, we will become the bold witnesses for Christ that won't need to be ashamed. We'll be willing to go out into our world. We'll tell us that I'm a follower of Christ. I belong to him. And we'll testify because he redeemed us. And he gave us his son to save us from our sins. And these are the things that are meant to be an encouragement to 
Israel. These are the things that are meant to be encouraging to all who are redeemed. The Redeemer of Israel is the same Redeemer that you and I have. He's the Redeemer of this church. He's the Redeemer of the body of Christ. And because he is our Redeemer, you and I don't have to be afraid. Though trials may come into our lives as a result of God's disciplining hand, they may be, it becomes so great that we wonder if God has forgotten us or has forsaken us. We too can remember from passages like this. Though we continue in sin, if, we believe, if our faith is in Christ, if our faith is in God, if we believe him and know him, we can have the assurance that our Redeemer will never leave us nor forsake us. He will always continue to love us. His love has no end. There was nothing that will separate us from his love. He will hold on to us tightly, even though we may hold on to him loosely. God will enable us, will empower us because we are his chosen people to be his witnesses in this world. And we will be that by his grace through the power that he gives us in his spirit. And we may God continue to do this in our lives as a church. As we close in prayer, let's bow our heads. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up and please lead us in a closing prayer, closing song. Let's pray. Lord, we've talked about you being our redeemer, and I first and foremost want to pray, we pray that if there's anyone here who does not yet know and believe upon you as their redeemer, may you open their eyes today. Though may you cause their ears to be open, may you cause their eyes to see that Jesus Christ is your son who came to die in our place on the cross and rose from the grave, offering to all who believe in him forgiveness of sins, and eternal life in Christ Jesus. Lord, may you do a work and call them and draw those who, are, uh, who hear your word today that they might come to know you as the Redeemer. And Lord, for the rest of us here, may you cause us to be assured by these truths of your love for us, that it is not a, your love is not fickle nor temporal. It's not conditional. No matter that how we sin, that we may sin time and time again, over and over, Lord, that will not impact your love for us, that you are our redeemer, you are our king, you are our holy one, you are our creator and our God. And because of that, and because you have the whole world at your disposal, our deliverance is assured because you are the one and true only God. Father, cause us to continue to trust in you. And when you discipline us by your hand, cause us to repent, to remember that we are sinners that need to return back to you in trust and faith. Help us be people who walk in obedience as we remember your love, our Redeemer's love. Father, we pray these things for your glory, for your sake, for the building up of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.